Hans Charles is modest. He's unassuming. He will sit and have a conversation with you about history, music, television. You name it, he'll talk about it. Yet still, you would never guess that he's an Emmy-nominated cinematographer. He has worked on films that have won multiple awards, including a BAFTA and an Oscar. The son of proud Haitian parents, Hans had dreams of becoming a professional musician. Recognizing that the journey in music may not have been for him, he decided to pursue a career in film. Hans's life philosophy has guided him to take small steps toward huge goals. Like anyone else, he admits that he has stumbled along the way. However, through it all, he says, he has remained committed and dedicated to his dream. These steps have allowed him to work with the likes of Ava DuVernay, among other luminaries in the world of film. While he is billed as a cinematographer, Hans is so much more. His passion for the craft has led him to both producing and writing. In 2018, Hans and his colleague produced the film One Angry Black Man, the first in a long list that he plans to create. Hans Charles's name has been floating among the who's who of the film world. While some movie lovers may not recognize his name, surely they have seen his work. The world should stay tuned. This incredible filmmaker has only just begun. This is the story, thus far, of Hans Charles. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Photographer extraordinaire Hans Charles, welcome to Planet Thirty in hey. person. Hey man, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Glad, uh, happy to have you, brother. It's been a while. I know it's been a while, and it's uh, nice to kind of see you. I feel like in my uh, native environment, you know. Uh, good times, good times back in Washington D.C. Um, Howard University Film Program. Absolutely, absolutely. Where it all started. But you you grew up in Connecticut. I did grow up in Connecticut. Yeah, I grew up here in Connecticut. So growing up in, in, in Connecticut, um, Haitian background, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, how did the Haitian culture influence and impact you as a kid? I mean, growing up in Connecticut, I don't think I even realized I was growing up in Connecticut. It just felt like I was growing up in a small Haitian town is what it felt like at the time in this region growing up. I think Haitians hit a population of about 10 to 15,000 Haitians between like three or four cities in Connecticut. Wow. So it was a sizable, sizable population. Um, and I just, you know, and even during that time, just between New York and New Jersey and Boston, it felt like another contingency of Haiti. So I felt like I grew up very much in Haitian culture, but a, you know, um, an amorphized version of Haitian culture. It wasn't the same as the island, or it wasn't the same as what was happening in Paris or, or Canada. So it was very much with an American sort of flavor to it, but I was that was what I grew up, and that's kind of what I knew. 
What are some of your first memories, though, of falling in love with art as a kid? I mean, any form of art. Yeah, music was probably the biggest thing. I think music for me visually is the biggest influence that I have. Compa? No, no, (laughs) not necessarily. Actually, it's between hip hop and jazz, I think, would be the, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a jazz musician. And I think, um, but then also funk. R&B, those are all big influences. I had a time where I was really into rock and roll and heavy metal. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I was totally, I was, there was like a few years in my life when I was younger that I was really, really into it. So all kinds of music. I mean, really, I, I, I growing up, I love new age music. I love classical music. I love music. Mm. And I'm, I'm still a fan of music. I love different types of musicians sometimes I'll, I'll pick up a country record that i really like you know but i've always grown up always big fan of funk always big fan of soul music um early on i could recognize like even though my parents had no sort of it wasn't like my parents were playing this music in the house i was just picking up bits and pieces of it but music i think for me as a filmmaker today is the biggest influence even over any visual medium i think i want to make I want to make images that have the same resonance and power that some of our favorite music does. Very interesting. So more the sonic affects you more than the visual. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, as a filmmaker, when I'm producing a film, I spend a lot of time making sure I gather the right audio team because I'm, I have a keen sense of how important the sonics are. Um, without the sonics, it does, just doesn't matter what we did visually. Like, that's, like, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's really, it's really what happens sonically. That's some of the most important things, you know, in a particular project. So, um, you know, I'm not a musician. I'm not a I was going to ask, do you play any instruments? No, I, yeah, I still play instruments. I could still play on the keyboard. I still play the bass. But I don't, I don't play them actively the way I used to. But I think I'm more into sort of understanding the way music affects our moods, in particular, we talk about cinema. So I'm, I'm very keen to pay attention to that. And I pay attention to the type of music I, I want in my films and the, and the artists that I want to work with. So after elementary, high school, you decide to go to Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Why Morehouse? Um, I left Connecticut when I was 16 years old. To My brother was um, had just graduated from college and was going to spend two years to prepare to get into to get into law school and basically kind of just made an offer for me to come live with him in Michigan. So I spent the last two years of high school out there and, you know, sort of a rural area. So I really wanted to sort of really be in the heart of black culture. And I knew, you know, I didn't want to go back to school in Connecticut and and to a state school or didn't want to be in the Northeast at all. And, um, yeah, there was something about Morehouse that kind of pulled me to it. And, you know, it's one of the probably the best decisions I've ever made in, in life. I think going to Atlanta at that, at that time, time, at that time was, you know, I mean, even there, there are parts of Atlanta that aren't even the same. And that was such a important cultural time for it, the country. And it was a lot of it was centered around Atlanta. So to get a, a front seat view of this cultural shift of watching southern music rise southern production southern culture make such an impact on the on the 
Yeah, on the larger culture. Yeah, on the larger culture. Yeah, absolutely. So getting a chance to see that at the ground level and to have kind of stories and things I experienced at the ground level was, it's always going to influence everything I do. Like when I watch um, uh, Donald, uh, Donald Glover's Atlanta, I like it's I it makes complete sense to me like that's that was that place you know so um yeah I mean it was it was it was an amazing you know three and a half years being there just all the things I saw Freaknik you know I went through three Freakniks um <laughs> not many Olympic, people not many people can say that <laughs> yeah the 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 Olympics um oh and, yeah that's right yeah the Olympics I mean yeah you know, and then other things like you know experiencing a certain type of violence that I hadn't experienced. It's, just, and it's, it's very, you know, it's like a, of two brains. Like the, I always felt like growing up right outside New York City and the times I spent in Brooklyn, that was like, I was physically on my most guarded, but I'd never, as, as dangerous as New York was, it was very dangerous. You could go on a block, you can get chased because nobody knew who you were, you can get robbed. But because I was so aware, like nobody could sneak up on me, but... I always felt like Atlanta was the place that that true death and violence brushed me on a on a constant basis. Mm. But at the same time, I never felt scared because Atlanta has such a particular culture that essentially if you don't start nothing won't be nothing. So unless a bullet hits you randomly, if you're not into trying to fight or flex or do anything like that, like it's not, you'll see it, you'll brush up against it. But if it's not a part of your makeup, it probably isn't going to get to you. And that's such a, that's a weird sort of dissonance that happens. Like, so my memories are of feeling very safe, but also the most violent things I've ever seen and experienced happen in Atlanta. So interesting. So after Morehouse, you and what was your major? Uh, Morehouse, I bounced around majors. I was a political science, English, French. I tried everything because at some point I was just trying to get out. And then as a French major, I had a professor who was like, "What do you really want to do in life?" I was like, "I want to make movies." And he's like, "You should stop everything you're doing and just do that." Um, and that, that's actually what prompted me to leave Morehouse and to go to a small school back in the Midwest. And that school led me to get opportunities to intern at Edmonds Entertainment and to be in LA and to make a film. And so that's kind of how that journey started, um, working on a television show and, and sort of writing. Oh, what, show? what show was it? It was like a cable access show that the school sponsored, but it was just like, just actually being involved in that, like um, writing, producing, shooting, like all that really started to tell me, okay, this is, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so that's what happened. You know, I ended up in, in L.A. interning for, like I said, for Edmonds Entertainment. And then um, I didn't love L.A. So and they, I, they were cranking out shows at that time, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were absolutely. I mean, they <laughs> were at that time, they were the hottest black production company in the town. But, you know, I didn't really love living Los Angeles. So I came back home to try to sort of get into the film scene there. And then 9-11 happened. So that kind of stopped. But what, what was it about L.A., though, that... I just didn't, I didn't feel creative in LA. I just, you know, I just didn't feel creative. Or too corporate. Yeah, it was, it was about the business. It was about schmoozing. It was about looking like you're doing something and talking things up. And that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, a, that's the way things get done. But I just like to do it. That's like my thing is I'm doing it. I don't like to talk about doing it. I just want to do it. So what are the things that I can actually do? And I, I 
I have the I, I have the mind to sort of be a development executive person, but I like doing it. I like the idea of like I don't want to trust somebody else to make the product. I want to just make the product myself. So I realized that I was like I don't want to be on the executive side. I want to be on the making side. So I moved back to the East Coast. Nine Eleven happened. I basically stopped my film life. Got married. Had a kid. Sort of lived a normal life, and then decided to go to film school to to restart that. And that's that's how I ended up at Howard. How does one drag oneself from the quote unquote normal life back into the the arena of film? I mean, that must have been hard. Yeah, it was difficult. I kind of call it my lost thirties because it was like my thirties where I was transitioning out of like a nine to five into like school and trying to figure this out. Um, I think you you kind of look and you see you have a window and you're like if I don't start and do something in this window, then it's just gonna get harder and harder to do it. And then you know the desire in you is there. You know that you can't settle until you do this thing, so you just follow it because you're not gonna be okay until you do it. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's essentially what it was. It was just following something internally. And then if I knew I was going to do that, then it meant that I had to go super hard once I went into it. So that's what I did. I just went hard. I just went hard at it. And I didn't always go about it smart, but I did go about it hard. So Hans, tell us about your experience in film school at Howard University. I mean, I look back at the experience being at the graduate film program at Howard University as sort of pivotal to sort of my ethos in making images now. And... Um, even as a producer, I think the sort of philosophical influence of Howard is what grounds me, I think, in images that have a certain type of resonance. And, but I think secondarily in images that I think that are sort of um, germinating. You know, I think the films that I'm making are not about necessarily hits once they're released, but they're about things that, you know, will still resonate with an audience 10, 15 years after the film's release. And that's, so it's to speak about very specific characters and various culturally specific things that have universal, that end up having universal themes, and then therefore can be timeless. And I think that's something that we learned at Howard's film program, that you, you can't, you leave the business of it up to somebody else, and that is very, very risky, and you're understanding that risk. But the telling of the story has to be a specific thing. It has to be a specific story. It has to be a specific character. It has to be a specific time period because that's the only way you really get true universality, mm -hmm. right, is specificity. Mm -hmm. So it's... And, and it, in order to get timelessness, you need universality to get timelessness. I think Garima taught us that, Crawford taught us that, Millington, um, Dr. Merritt, Dr. Madhavani, um, Sonia. Shannon Merritt. They all, I think they all <laughs> aimed for us to make culturally specific stories that then had universality and then became timeless. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I was told once, um, Crispin, there are only two real film schools in the country, NYU and USC. Why didn't you pick one of those? <laughs> yeah, those. I, yeah, that's. I think that's poppycock. I think. I think there are. 
those are you can go to film schools and you know like the NBA a few of those people get plucked and become wildly successful but the majority of the people who go to either of those schools do not see that level of success and yet somebody who goes to USC or somebody who goes to NYU obviously the nature of you know college and culture you think you identify with the successful people but it's not true that you're going to find the same level of success of those people um and there are an amazing amount of image makers who have gone to a plethora of film schools in this country and when you really drill down to the film business not film fame i think there's those mm -hmm. two different things there's film fame. Okay, yeah, that's a person that went to NYU that has an Oscar. Has nothing to do with you, even if you went to NYU. Has nothing to do with me. Then there's the film business. You know, people who make their living making movies. And you can go to any film school to do that. Um, and you may have an opportunity to, to be in a position to get an Oscar. You know, that person didn't get an Oscar because they went to NYU. Like, that's just not, that's just not the case. They happened to get the right story at the right time with the right people, the right financing, and get the right push. It's a coincidence that they went to NYU. Mm. Um, even if it seems to be a coincidence, it happens multiple times because there are tons of people who have Oscars who did not go to NYU. So, um, if you're or, or anywhere else, or anywhere else, if if you're the admissions marketing person for NYU, then of course that's what you're going to push on. But the reality is that you know the people who succeed in the film business are driven. Okay? Right. Does NYU attract a lot of driven people? Probably, um, but the business in general attracts driven people because it's the only way that you can even remotely be successful. It's not a business you can be passive in. You have to be very active in this business. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. Back when we were starting the graduate program in film at Howard University, it was literally the year before the invention that would change the visual world, YouTube. Uh, there was no YouTube for us to experiment and put our stuff up and et cetera, et cetera. It was very primitive. Uh, you couldn't really upload more than, what, 10 minutes or something. In today's, you know, fast forward 15 years, in today's world, we have YouTube stars. People have been monetized. In the days of YouTube, is film school necessary? Yeah, film school is about cohorts, though. Film school is never necessary. I think I would actually disagree with you. I don't think YouTube is the thing that changed filmmaking. I think the I think the well, I mean, how we view certain things. I yeah, guess. but I think even in the viewing, I think the thing that changed was the digital Red Digital's um, codec that allowed you to use raw files in motion. Mm, yeah, I think okay, I think that's actually true. arguably very true. a more revolutionary because without that, then YouTube actually doesn't, doesn't exist. Yeah, because because you had video on phones, it just didn't look like film, right? And so, without what Red did pushing the manufacturers who already had raw, right? But they were just using raw stills to then develop DSLRs. You would, I would argue that DSLRs, the, the, oh, no, the development they, of DSLRs definitely. is what... Because you can see the development of DSLRs and the development of YouTube in Go parallel. hand in hand, yeah. So I would argue that that... Uh, but I still think that because filmmaking... The problem, the problem with YouTube and the YouTube stars and the reason that they're going to 
they may not fade out. It's not smart for me to predict and say they're going to fade out. The reason that they may not have the influence that you will see filmmakers still making prestige products. And I think, because I think what's going to happen to the YouTube stars is just going to get co-opted by marketing. And they're already being co-opted by marketing. And so are filmmakers too, quite frankly. But they'll be more co-opted than the filmmakers. Is you need to have something to say. Mm -hmm. And if you're just making clicks and you have to, at a volume, create content, you're ne you're you're never keeping up with your ability to have something to say. You're just spitting something out, and then because YouTube is accessible to everybody, that means that you're competing with everybody in the world, and you're eventually gonna kind of burn yourself out in terms of substance. It's really quantity versus quality. It's quantity versus quality. So um, now that doesn't mean that it YouTube is not going away. YouTube stars aren't going away. YouTube is gonna continue to make stars. I, I'd be fool to predict that. But I think when you talk about becoming a filmmaker, you talk about having something to say. Now, do you want to be rich, famous, and have an, an Oscar? Well, then that's a different path. And I don't know about that path. I can't necessarily help you. Um, but if you're interested in, you know, maybe making a piece of work that everybody will talk about and everybody will see even after you're long gone, then I think what film school helps you do is it helps you surround yourself with a cohort of people who have a similar desire and you guys get to exchange information then you make lifelong friendships and then hopefully you get to do something together 20 years later or whatever awesome you can't do that sitting by yourself in your homemade youtube studio and look at look at the youtube stars they're 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 making more and more outrageous content, which is great for marketing. It's great for followers, but it's not changing the world. Like, like, like Jake Paul is not going to change the world by boxing people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's great for that startup company that's streaming it. Like, it's great. It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing marketing too. It might be good for boxing, but it's not changing the world. We're going to forget about him. Not artistically. Well, we're going to forget about him once he can't box anymore. And once another kid who's more outrageous, figures out a new way of doing it that's yeah, even the simpler. New, the new sexy. The new sexy, so we'll forget about it. Interesting. You know, there was, a, there was a time where we talked about Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. And they were, they were, you know, they were the <laughs> kids. So it's just, but we'll always talk about Mark Scorsese. We'll always talk about Spike Lee. Agreed. We'll always talk about Gina Blythewood. Agreed. You know what I mean? Agreed. Agreed. So, Professor Mahabani exposed us to Films that we had never seen. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Merritt, same thing. Um, Professor Crawford showed us cinematography. Professor Garima uh, taught us how to write our stories. Why cinematography for you? After being exposed to every area. Well, I, cinematography is what I do professionally, but I'm the great thing about having gone to Howard and you could sort of attest to this, is that because it taught you every area, you still do every area. I still write. I don't advertise in L.A. that I write, but I'm a writer. I write with, you know, the guy I went to film school with, Benelek Lamumba. We write and develop scripts together. Um, I'm a producer, mm -hmm. right? I produce. And cinematography is a means of taking one of those... One, one it's a way of continuously working in the business. So the thing about being a director 
or a writer or even a producer is you're sort of waiting for somebody, for something to happen for you then to, then to get going. Right. When you're a cinematographer, there's always a need to shoot something. So you're always constantly working. So I can learn from writers because I have to get the script and I can look, wow, this is a script that we're going to shoot. Let me see how the script is structured. What is it about the script? I can, I'm actually watching actors act out the script. I'm watching how production design, how costume design, how everything is coming together just from the process of shooting a particular script or shooting a particular project. So I'm always, you know, as a, as a DP, I'm always with the production company. So I'm always seeing how things are happening on the producing end. Because in a weird way, as a cinematographer, you are a part of that, right? You are mm -hmm. a big part of making it all move. So to me, it's actually very natural for a cinematographer to produce. It's, it's weird to me that more cinematographers Don't do not become producers. Because in a, especially in the independent space, you are essentially a producer. Most DPs who have a good working relationship with a writer, director, with a production company are de facto producers. They're helping you get the camera. They're helping you get the crew. They're helping you move efficiently. They're helping you say, okay, we can get rid of this day. We can add this day. So it's a natural part of what we do. Um, so yeah, that's the practical reason. Like in order to see it every day, um, and because I wasn't going to live in Los Angeles, becoming a cinematographer was a way of making sure I'm constantly on a set, constantly working Very smart. As, as a cinematographer. And then as I developed the other areas, um, and then being a cinematographer also introduces me to the people who then may want to work with me. Right. I get that just pure exposure. That's a lot of the quote unquote luck of film is you just need to be exposed. You need to work with somebody. They like you. They say, come in for a meeting. Tell me what you're doing. I think I want to work with you. Well, you can't do that if they don't ever meet you. Right. And if the only way for them to meet you is for them, best way is for, to work. Like, it's nothing that says, I want to work with you when somebody sees you working. And they don't even, you don't even realize they're watching you, but they're evaluating you. So that works perfectly. So that's just an opportunity. So I would say you may have desires to be a director, but you can't come out of film school and say, I'm going to be a director because ain't nobody going to pay you to do that. Nobody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, or if you are lucky enough that you come out of film school and the first job you have is as a director, it may be years before you actually that project, even if somebody promised you when you first got out of film school, actually comes to fruition. So in order, and, and, and you're at a disadvantage because you are not, just because you're the director doesn't mean you know what you're doing. Correct. And that's one of the things that I find is a lot of directors do not know what they're doing. Our business does actually reward people who have no experience in terms of the directing chair. And it's very interesting for, there's, there's no, this is the only business that you could be in charge of so much money and risk and have almost no experience. We, even within the business, nobody would take that risk with a sound recorder or sound designer. Nobody would take, nobody would definitely take that risk with a cinematographer. No, no. You know? um, we don't even like taking that risk with actors to a degree. Like we like actors with some, you know, some experience. You know, it's rare that we, it's rare that somebody centers a $50 million picture around an actor who's never acted before. Right. Who's just watched people acted. Right. Right. But only in directing do we do that though. We do that in directing all I never the thought time. about it that way. Well, because it's weird that people think 
like the the reason I've been especially after the Oscar buzz, the Emmy buzz from Thirteenth, I was asked like, "Hey, do you want to direct? Do you want to direct?" And I was like, first of all, I went to film school. Obviously, I learned a lot about directing, but I know that there's a difference between like me saying, "Oh, I'd like to try my hand at directing," and somebody who always wanted to be a director was obsessed with directing, and that's all they wanted to do. There's a big difference. Those are two different driven, two different brain people. I have so much respect for those people that to step into that and to say, I think I can do this because I watched somebody do it, that's a no-no. Maybe 10 years from now after really having worked with directors, having sort of semi-directed some things and sort of doing some things, maybe I could try my hand, but I have so much respect for the chair in terms of the real craft, mm -hmm. the people who have actually studied it, who have obsessed about it, who have done it, that you can't just step into it. And you see it all the time. You see... A lot of projects where a so-called first-time director has stepped, whether they're a former actor or, you know, sometimes people have been former hairdressers or whatever, it's the fact that they've surrounded that person with literally Oscar-caliber people in every, in every single other, other position. Yeah, yeah, correct. That person isn't truly directing. Right. The cinematographer. The, everybody else is literally, not just cinematographer, the everybody editor, else everybody is directing. Else. Yeah. And so I, I sometimes turn projects down because I'm like, this person is not, because directing to me is we are working hand in hand. I am now your backup and we are in a foxhole together. Right. If you're not going to be in a foxhole with me and then you need this producer and that person, that person, and, and really it's other people, like directing dudes are really shared, then I'm not interested in doing it. Even if it's a big celebrity name, it's going to be a big project. I can't say the project. There's a big project that came out that I turned down as a cinematographer. I said, because I don't think this person is going to actually be directing the way I want to. I want to collaborate with them. Correct. And, you know, I got limited time, limited time on this earth. There's no point in just putting my name with stuff that's, okay, it's going to be out there. and I'm associated with this name. I need to be doing, at this point, I don't need to do that anymore. At this point, I need to make, I need to be doing collaborations that are real artistic collaborations that I'm going to learn from. You care less about the brand. It's not at this point. It's not. It's not. It's not a benefit to me anymore because I need to develop not only as a filmmaker. I need to develop as a cinematographer. I need to develop in certain levels. I can't develop on like boutique brandy directors. That's not going to work for me. You know, I, I need to think beyond. I can't just think of a paycheck. I have to think about what am I actually? What am I going to leave as a legacy as a cinematographer as well? Since I'm going to, I've invested so much time in this. Right. So I have respect for that chair. I have a respect for that chair. I respect the Julie Dashes of the world. I respect mm. the, you know, uh, John Singletons of the world. I respect the Scorsese's of the world, the Coppola's of the world. I respect these people too much to then say I can go do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a slap in the face almost. Look, I just respect it. I know what they're bringing to the table. And in this, I've then, re I've tried the experiment, I've reinforced it because I've seen when people step to that chair and they don't have the thing. And people don't understand that thing. They, they think that thing is a production company tells you the director. Uh, I have a script idea. I want, no, that's not it. There's, there is an orchestration, an understanding of how, although you're the, the conductor, you are a conduit mm -hmm. that then just influences where it goes. Mm -hmm. The understanding that all these parts, you are bringing all these people along because they are doing what they're doing. Right. And you're just influencing it, 
right? Great directors know that. And then the really the extraordinary directors... They're not dictators. They're, they're, but, but the extraordinary ones sometimes are dictators, but it's because they know everybody's position almost better than everybody. Got it. Right? Mm. So a Spike knows what the sound recorder needs to do. He knows the levels that you need. He knows the cinematographer. He knows the f-stop, right? You know, uh, Spielberg, he's the one who picks the lenses and the f-stop and all that stuff. The cinematographer just does the technical part, but Spielberg knows exactly what he does. Spielberg doesn't ask the DP, hey, what lens should I use, right? He knows exactly. He knows what, what material what, what. of the costume. He knows the period. He may not know which store you need to go buy it up, but he knows this is the material. This is what I want. This is what it needs to look like, right? He's not waiting for somebody to make a suggestion. He's not waiting. Okay, no, no, no. Forget all that stuff. I just want to talk to the actors. No, 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 no. There's 150% control out of everything. And that control is based on hours of research and imagination. It's not based on, well, somebody said I'm the director, so I'm going to tell you what to do. That's the difference. And a lot of people don't know that's the difference. They don't know the detailed work that these people put into the craft that they do. They don't know about all the notes, all the annotations that nobody else sees. Just so when that person shows up on set, they're 150% prepared. So for me, I can spot you a mile away. Right, I know right. when you're not the real director. I know it because I know what a real director looks like. Because their preparation is so deep, I can feel it even when I don't see it. I can see the vibrating research that's dripping off the person. And the other thing is it makes everybody else as a department head step up their game because they could feel the weight. That's why when a Scorsese steps on set, when a Spielberg steps on set, you feel it when a Kubrick steps on set. You like You get shook because they're so uber ready. They are so steeped in the ability to direct this thing that you are scrambling to meet them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of directors don't have that. And so you're just like, oh, I can see. Okay. Okay. I see what's happening. Okay. There's a paycheck for me. There's not even like, there's not a life changing thing. There's a paycheck. You know, you go into a thing with Spike. First of all, you better do your research to find out, okay, what is Spike watching right now? Then what's he been watching the last three years? You better go watch it, and then you better come up with your own analysis on it before you even sit in the chair to have the conversation with him about whether or not he should hire you. Because when he throws out a reference, you need to be able to say, well, Mike, that's an interesting reference, but why are you using it that way? Because I would, I would use it this way. So he can be like, okay, you know what you're talking about because you have your own analysis about this reference, right? Because if you don't know, what's he talking to you for? What does he need you for? Right? To turn the camera on? He could do that. That's not what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to bring something to the table. Right? So that's why those guys sometimes work with people with years and years of experience. Because they, they need you to bring something to the table. They don't need to bring you along. I'm at the point in my career where I'm trying to, one, learn. to then develop such a deep ability to then for each project i'm going to do this amount of research i'm going to do this about referencing not just the pretty presentation here's this little deck i'm giving you no 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 real analysis having read having watched the director's commentary having really understand taking seven influences and then breaking those down frame by frame and finding what the influences of the influences 
Right. Spike is looking at movies in the 1930s and 40s. So if you're looking at stuff from the 80s and, and 70s, you're behind. He's looking at obscure things. He's not looking at things for entertainment. He's looking at things that had an impact. He's, he knows who, who influenced his influences, who influenced those people. Taking it back from motion picture into the still, whether it's whether it's art, art yeah. whether it's art or motion picture, he understands the influences, and then he understands how to contextualize them, and then he recontextualizes for his uses. Hmm. So, with all that said, what is your style of cinematography? Like, describe your style. I don't know if I at this point if I have a style. I think I've seen. Some work that people have done. I saw a friend of mine just do something. It's beautiful. And I was like, man, it's beautiful. And I'm like, I'm not in a place where I am trying to be identified in a particular project. I'm in a place where the project dictates what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And I will move in that space. That's where I am. And I'm trying to develop techniques and a sensibility that can honor that. Mm-hmm. So that I can work on anything. I can be. I mean, there are things I will not work on. I don't like. I don't care for horror. So I don't <laughs> want to work in a horror space. I don't want to be in a headspace. I'm not interested in being in a headspace. That's not a space that for 30, 40, 50 days I won't be living in a horror. I just don't want to be. Because to I think when you make movies, you have to live in that headspace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really care for horror. I think as a black man in America, life is horror. That's enough. enough. That's enough. I just don't need any more. I don't need to be scared. I have enough. I have, you know, I'm driving in a car. That's enough. Worrying about my kids is enough horror. I don't need worrying about my parents. That's enough horror in my life. I don't need any more. Right? But you have to live in a headspace. So I like to work on projects that these, this is a headspace I can live in. This is a headspace I can dive into. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to have a particular style. I want people to look at every different piece of life. What it, I can't tell what this guy does. I don't know what camera he uses. I don't know what lenses he's using. Because I want to constantly be experimenting. I want to constantly be trying. Um, and never never coast. I want to always be living on the edge. Never comfortable. Trying new things that I have not mastered. Because I just don't want to be comfortable. I never want to feel like I have it down. I want to feel like I'm always trying to impress a director. Speaking of directors, who are some of the filmmakers that you do admire? Like Who are Hans Charles's you know what's your what's your what's your top five list? Oh, I can't. I mean, film, I can't. <laughs> well, have no. Let five. me let me not say top five because you know you're working professional. But you know, just, just throw out some names that you know. I you know I like Dash's work. I mean, I love anybody's work. Who's here's here's like my favorite work. I love a movie or a TV show now because we can add television into the, like the 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 art thing. That nobody, people panned in the beginning, and then now as they rediscover it, they realize, like, man, this is really good. Mm. You know, like, I was talking to men, like, about Baby Boy. Mm-hmm. We're like, damn, Baby Boy was, did, people did not understand Baby Boy. I, it, I, challenge it your, I challenge your audience to go back and watch Baby Boy. Baby Boy is deep. If you want to understand the black male American psyche, and, and the headwinds that a black American male is facing, you got to watch Baby Boy. Like, Baby Boy just... It, it, and it's interestingly enough, when you, when you go back and look at it through, you know, a, a more mature lens, and then you couple that with the fact that he initially wrote that for Tupac. Mm. 
from my understanding, that, uh, you know, Tupac was the person he had in mind. That would have been that would have been an info. I mean, unfortunately, I think mean, Pac you, had changed. You, if Pac had had, if Pac had rediscovered the person that he was before he had, you know, before the the shooting at the studio in New York, before the stuff with the cops and all that. If he was on the way to rediscovering that person, that would have been a perfect. You can see what he was drawing yeah. from. Yeah, that would have been very interesting because he would have bought. There's so much of his own personal experience that he would have brought to that. So I could see why Singleton went after Pac or thought was thinking about Pac. Right. But I love pieces that. I'm not mad at Tyrese's performance at all. I think it's the best performance of his acting career. And he'll never meet. You. He'll never meet. I don't think. I don't think ever. But you know what it is too, right? It's an authentic. Uh, representation it, but it's also very culturally specific that's what i'm saying so yeah. when it comes from your yeah it's ethos. very culturally specific it's very culturally. Yeah. everything about it is very culturally specific you know from thing rain's character talking about you know uh suggestive rape mm-hmm. you know just all so culturally specific so things like that are what i like regardless of the director because you could be a director you could just happen to have a movie that is sort of not panned or people don't really aren't really fucking with it in the beginning and then like 10 years later people are like oh shit mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. to me is that's the thing who cares about people like it now doesn't i think it's irrelevant because we have a short memory it's will people rediscover this thing right you know that is what i'm interested it's interesting that um <laughs> that you should say that because i'm noticing now even with the tiktok generation um these kids are rediscovering good songs. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a challenge out right now with um, a song from Natasha Bedingfield. Yeah, I saw that. From I like, what, 04 yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and okay. it's just so interesting that when you put yourself into your craft, and you, and uh, you know, to your point, you may not, people may not appreciate it now. Ten years down the road, you know, this was an excellent... Well... Basquiat wasn't uh, popular until he died. <laughs> yeah, a, a perfect example is hip hop. The sampling, right? Yeah. You talk to crate diggers. There, a lot of like a lot of what they challenge themselves to do is to find obscure music that's amazing that just wasn't popular and sell well. So it's hard, even hard to find copies of it. Yeah. Because there wasn't a lot of it pressed, right? And so, like you said, good work will find its space. Yeah. And I think. Kanye, Bound to Fall in Love. I had never heard the song in my life. Mm. When I when he, you know followed his sample, and I said, this has to be a sample. You know, he's a mm. sample master. Mm. And I found the group, and I found the song, and I was like, wow, I was playing it for weeks. So, to me, I want to do that as a filmmaker. So, it's like any, it's really any film that becomes rediscovered. Not rediscovered, but you can look at it and be like, oh, man, this is so good. Because you, you also have the maturity... You have the eyes now to see what was happening. And one of the things is to to remove entertainment from my thing. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like that's the new skill. It's like, okay, when am I studying? When am I being entertained? You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to 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 take in visuals as a form of uh, research and education. That's what I you know tell my students all the time. So I know I know I'm pressing you, but you got just drop a couple in there and tell me some of your favorite films. Um, Visually, at least just in terms of some Right now, 
The film I'm obsessed with is In the Mood for Love, Juan Carwai. Ah, power. That's not, that's not, <laughs> you know, it's not deep. It's not a, a obscure reference, but it's the, it's right now it's just, you know, it's the film I show my students all the time because it is it's one of the best examples. I think if you think about like all the. They probably of, used every textbook, um, how should I say, element that is taught in cinematography. Or broke all those rules, you know, because it was like it was like three cinematographers, Christopher Doyle and two Asian cinematographers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the color, the yeah. But but what's interesting movie. for me about like what Juan Carwai represents is here's this very culturally specific movie about a specific time in Taiwan, and he makes this film that here I am, an African American, am in totally enamored with, and not in a sort of fetishy way, mm-hmm. like where I'm identifying with the characters within their cultural context. So I'm not, I'm not re like, I don't ever want to remake in the mood for love ever. There's no reason to remake in the mood for it's love. It's done. It's, it's, it's <laughs> perfect as it is. Right. There's that song, the soundtrack, everything about it. But, but it, it, there is no compromise in terms of culture. And yet the film is so like, important and successful and timeless right and so things like that there is there is there's some films that have a you know like films that i start to see when i really decided i wanted to go into cinema like i just rewatched tampopo which is a quirky japanese film about you know comedy genre bending film about making noodles that so it's just like, for me, it's like, I don't have these like, okay, these are the, I just have films that I enjoy that I can break down. Um, and I also have a bad memory. So I can't always, I can't always remember like this film or that film. So that's why I just go, <laughs> we go through my list and rewatch things because I, I'm, I can't, I can't do the recall. Say, oh, this, this film is like, I just remember feelings, you know, right. this film gave me this feeling, um, which is why I have to be so, um, intentional about like research because i can't i don't like i remember there's a a friend of mine who can like you can see a film one time and can completely remember you can recall everything about it and that's just i just don't have that recall Hmm. so i have to constantly be watching i have to constantly just to remember and i have to write down notes and take pictures and friend i do a whole lot of work just so i can say oh this is the film that i you know because i just don't have the recall that's why i can't remember rap lyrics i love i've listened to everything i've i can't remember rap lyrics if I were to come across my favorite rapper, I've come across Nas a couple times. I cannot recite Nas. And I can't tell you how many times I've listened to his music. Right. I cannot remember rap lyrics to save my life. And rappers are like, well, if you if you really a fan of my spit my lyrics, motherfucker, I can't. Like, it's not, it's not, it's not like, it's not because I'm not listening to your stuff. It's like, you right. I don't have the ability you, you, you to recall. Like, just know I enjoy your music. I can tell you how your music makes you feel. I can actually break down the structure. I, was, I had a conversation once with Raekwon. And I was talking about, like, my interpretation of the structure of his music over time. Right. Like, I was saying, yeah, on this album you did this, on this album you've been doing that. And da-da-da. He was like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I was like, I could, like, you're, I, I could take you, tell you what your album is doing because I could tell you what it feels like. So I could feel it that way, but you start asking me lyrics. I can't tell you the lyrics, and I know the lyric. As soon as I hear the lyric, oh, I know that lyric, but I can't. Re- I can't recall it. One angry black man. Tell us about the film. You know, conception and what what is it about? Yeah, I mean, 
One Angry is about, uh, it's really about trauma, black trauma. It's about, you know, a kid who goes through a traumatic event that he doesn't expect. And he's having to kind he has to come to grips with it. And it's exploring trauma through people we believe told us about this trauma, you know, black literary greats, right? So this classroom, it takes place in a classroom setting at an elite uh, New England college. And it's a, um, a black literature course that these students are taking. And this, the trauma sort of shows itself in the discussion of these books, which happens at, you know, all kinds of schools. Um, so that's what the, the film was about. I mean, it came about, you know, my, my creative partner and I were trying to figure out our first film that we could release. And we kind of had these rules that had to take place in one day, had to have a limited budget, had to take place in one location just to make it feasible, you know, so that it, we, as much of the production quality could go into the film. Sometimes people are overly ambitious. Um, I'm hearing a story about this guy who's making this movie. He's trying to make a feature length film in like five days. And people, you know, you, you want your first feature, if I was giving advice, it needs to be show your mastery of the craft a good story is not enough i don't think even good acting is not enough you want to show overall craft because then you're you're re you're leaving too much a chance to get your second opportunity to direct right but if you show mastery of craft then people know they can trust you with the money and then they're not going to surround you because if they do decide to let you direct again they're not, you're not going to be flooded with a whole bunch of people that these aren't your people. You have to show, I can handle the craft so I can scale up, right? So I can go from super low budget to a million. Right. From a million to five, right? Um, so that's a lot of what One Angry was. I mean, it was, off, you know, it was obviously, I felt the script. I think it's the movie itself. Who wrote Who wrote the script? My friend, and, you know, I went to film school with Menelik Men so he wrote and directed the project. I was a cinematographer and the producer. I developed it from start to end. Um, and it was like the first thing that I produced, you know. Um, and I, I had always known, even when I was a focus puller, that I, I knew I was going to do something in producing. Because I always, as a focus puller, I'm always having these conversations with producers about budgets and things like that. And, and I knew that I was gaining a lot of information just from these conversations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was paying attention to it as that, you know. Um, and I, you know, the great thing about having gone to Howard is Howard doesn't let you mentally silo anything. So in the industry, it's weird that I am, like, this is a weird pivot for the industry. People think I'm ruining my cinematography career. Um, some people don't see me as a real producer because you're really a cinematographer. No, you're really a director. You just don't know it. Right. But I can see the path. And that's the great thing about Howard is Howard helps you kind of clarify things that people don't always see. Yeah, the exposure to every single area is important. And, yeah. Um, even, and I'll tell you where it kicked in for me, having done work in the Caribbean where there's very little resources mm, mm, mm. and um, people with the expertise, you're not going to just stumble onto a, a you know an expert cinematographer um like in new york so when you know a little bit of everything mm -hmm. but you know enough i should say when you know enough of every area to pull something together it makes a difference because i was thinking to myself you know for those that would have gone to school specifically for cinematography or 
or you know in an editing vein or a screenwriting vein and then you throw them out to do a project with one other person a pa a lot of times they're going to fall and i think how would really well the other way i also thought about it is obviously i I spent my time training as a cinematographer but i also was just like i'm not going to wait for somebody to give me work i'm not going to try to prove myself in that way i'm going to get to the point where I'm generating my own work, and I'm gonna start hiring other cinematographers' work because yeah. I just have, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna stop shooting, you know. I mm-hmm. want to become a great cinematographer, mm-hmm. and I think I will become a great cinematographer. And I think one of the ways of doing that is not only have the sensibility as a producer, but to continuously humble and understand that a cinematographer is the shepherd and servant of the director and the story. And so, as long as you remember that. You know, I would... and, and as much as you've accomplished, it's interesting that you say, "I am not a great cinematographer yet." Oh yeah, I'm, I I got a long way to go. I think I have the ability to do it. Um, I just have to continue to work at it. Something I didn't ask you: um, Are there any cinematographers that like whose work that you really liked, or you know? Again, this is a recall question, so <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to recall. Um, you know, it's like. It, you will see something and it moves you. Right. So it's more about the thing than the person. Yeah, it's, it's always the thing of the person. Obviously, there are some cinematographers that you realize their ability, regardless of the story. Like, I have an appreciation. This is an easy, this is an easy picking. This is low-hanging fruit. But there's an appreciation for Roger Deakins because it's, it's, it's not in the complex scenes that I think Deakins is great. It's in the simple scenes. I think that Deacons is great. Hmm. It's in the small scenes that we take for granted. I actually think, given the resources, a lot of people can take a complex scene and make it look great. I think it's it's the joy, I feel like, in the attention that somebody like Deacons takes in the simple scenes, the almost throwaway scenes, that he still takes a sense of craft. And so many cinematographers take a sense of craft. That I realize, like, not only do you develop the ability to do very big, complex things, but you never lose a sense of craft to take even the simplest scenes and to make your mark craft-wise. And then make your mark in a way that only another craft person can even recognize what you did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the thing that I want to achieve. You know, Excellent. The Back of the Theater podcast, which is like the... One of the most original and fitting names, um, and that's you and Menelik. Menelik. Yeah. Why did you guys uh, decide to do a podcast? We were having conversations that Menelik was like, people should be listening to this conversation. Like, we should, we should, and this is early. I mean, we're now in our fifth season, I think, mm. fifth or sixth year. And he was just like, people will want to listen to this. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like, nobody cares. And that's still my attitude. I I I'm, <laughs> I take a very. I'm not interested in monetizing back of the theater. I'm not interested in back of the theater getting like 10 million download. I'm not interested. I do back of the theater because it's an opportunity to talk critically with one of my closest friends in life. That's what's interesting. And sometimes we want to bring somebody else in this conversation. And we don't do interviews. We do conversations. So sometimes we bring in. We'll have a guest. We're talking for 10 minutes before we even... We're just letting the guests listen to react to what we're saying. It's like, and oh, just oh by understand. the way, our friend's here. Yeah, literally, <laughs> this guest is here who we've never met, you know, because it's about, it's about people talking 
and to develop ideas over long form, the way our phone conversations would be, you know, our hour, two hour long phone conversation. So for me, the back of the theater is an opportunity to, it's all it is is a podcast, is a podcast that analyzes love, life, and politics all through the lens of film. That's essentially what it does. Because we believe, like, for example, we have a, a mini theory that every of life's situations can be explained in a scene from The Godfather. Oh, wow. So we will sometimes be talking to each other and then to put a point on whatever we talk about, we will, I will say a line from The Godfather. That's fitting. Because it fits perfectly. Yeah, got it. Right? And the other day we did it with Goodfellas. I do that with song titles. Yeah. You know, right? So it's just like, so like I'm realizing like, wow, there's like, there's certain films that are so good that lines from the film are African apply to situations in life, right? And that's like one of these weird things that we have in back theater. So it's really about, you know, how does this political situation, how can we look at film and understand using film and cinema to understand a political situation or a life situation? How does it tie in? Everything, yeah, because it's all through the lens of cinema. And then sometimes we just talk about because that gives you great background to talk about how great cinema is. You know, mm. you know, the understanding of cinema is a lifelong pursuit. You know, I like that. I like that. So I have a list here, Hans: the New York Film Festival, the Urban World Film Film Festival, the New York City Latino Film Festival, Outfest, the Los Angeles Film Festival. The Zanzibar Film Festival, the Black Star Film Festival, HBO, ESPN, Netflix, Hulu. Your work is all over the place, my friend. What does it mean to have your work shown on, you know, at these, on these uh, platforms and at these festivals? But especially as a black filmmaker, what does that mean to you? I hate to be like this. I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's great. It's great. <laughs> But, you know, I think, like, sometimes parts of filmmaking is, like, being a crack at it. You're constantly chasing the next high. It's yeah. It's hard to, yeah. to, 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 uh, to enjoy the moment. The one of the places I love, shout out to the Black Star Film Festival. This is their 10-year anniversary. Shout out to Maori Holmes, um, founder of the festival and the director. That's one of, the fel- that's one of my favorite film festivals. It's one that, you know, when people ask me, what film festival should I go to? I would say, go to Philadelphia, go to Black Star. Uh, look, man, you're just trying to make work. You're just trying to work. You like, I don't even like, I don't even focus on that part of it. That's great. It's a great part of the business to, to see something on the screen. I going to the festival is really about just meeting new, new and interesting people. Like one of the reasons I go to Sundance is like not to be seen and not to be at this or that. It's just to sometimes see old friends. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes to meet new friends, you know, I've met friends where I just, I met them there and then we just hang out all weekend long, you know, I, you know, I'm still chasing, I'm chasing something is all I can say. I'm you don't know what yet. I don't know what yet, but I'm definitely chasing something. I'm still, and so the, you realize that this stuff as interesting as, is a goal as it is, is actually not that it, it doesn't, like, it's just a really weird thing to say, but it's not that important. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm still chasing a thing, a thing that's timeless. And I don't know what it is yet. So I, I feel like I have a lot of work in front of me. I appreciate, I think coming from where I come from, not only like like my actual background, like the town I come from, and then the film school I came from and the way I came into this business, 
I am eternally grateful for the success that I've had. I probably should have had this amount of success and influence and my name shouldn't be where it is. And I appreciate that immensely. I do not, though, want to sit and say, well, I got this. I want to continue to just whatever it was that the same. I feel like the same feeling is what got me through those spaces and that, you know, those films went to those spaces. I'm trying to keep that same energy to go forward. And I don't know where it's going to land. I may never get another Emmy nomination or never make another film that, that gets Oscar nominated. That may never happen. And I still understand that. I have to just be okay with that. But I just need to just continue to pursue, just tell the stories I want to tell. Because I don't know what's going to happen. And life's short. You know, this yeah. thing this COVID year has taught me. Life's short. Don't chase the trophies. You know, right. Graham used to say that to us, right? He, don't chase he always the, did. Don't chase the trophies. Like, chase the story. Yeah. You know, Teza is going to be a timeless story. Sankofa is a timeless story. Right. These stories explain complex ideas, feelings, and emotions. Mm. And I, I want that, man. Like, the statue is beautiful. I'm sure you wake up the next day with an Oscar in your hand or an Emmy in your hand. That is a great, great feeling. I have no doubt. Do you, but do I've, you, do you, I've been around people who've had that, and they're... <laughs> It because it, it, it also comes with a certain pressure to recreate right. it. So that's what so, I'm saying. Do you think the two are mutually exclusive? Like, don't you think that they're not mutually exclusive? I think though you have to be careful. You have to be careful at nakedly chasing because I think it drives you crazy and it can make you very unhappy as a filmmaker. Right. Making right, right. being a filmmaker is is already a pursuit in knowing you're gonna be frustrated. You shouldn't. You shouldn't add something to that. Getting an Oscar or getting an Emmy should just, like, you should be happy. Like, I got this. I'm happy. A lot of people who have Oscars and Emmys are happy because they want another Oscar and another Emmy. But it's like you said, you know, chasing the next high. Yeah, but I'm chasing the next high until just the next project. I'm not chasing... No, I mean, for, for some people, it's about... Yeah, and, and, and when you understand the lightning in a bottle that is... Just a nomination, let alone a win. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's harder than heroin, man. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you could try heroin, doesn't mean you need to be an addict. Right. right you know what I'm saying? Right, you're like, right, all right, right, that was right. cool, I'm moving on. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So for me, I'm just like, yeah, that was cool, I'm moving on. Now, get another hit, I'll take it, but I'm not chasing no hits. I'm not going to the streets asking, no. <laughs> if I'm at a party and somebody's like, hey, okay, that's different, but I'm not chasing it. Because it'll drive you crazy. And I've seen it. And it makes you... Here's what I don't want to be. I don't want to be the... I don't want to be the person that people get on set with. And it's... I'm unpleasant to work with. Yeah. It's very easy to... That's yeah. a very... There's none of us mm. who are not susceptible to that. You have to constantly guard against that. Yeah. Because you could be the most successful. You could be the richest. People come in with preconceived notions anyway. So sometimes Look, the slightest thing can can, the can easiest solidify. Thing to give away in this business is kindness. Very true. Particularly on set. It don't cost you nothing. Very true. To be pleasant and kind. I've been, I've been on some rough professional. sets. So and I think look, I was in a space where an amazing cinematographer got the highest honor as a cinematographer. And half the people in the room, a lot more were, were peers. Didn't stand up. Mm. Because that person over the years was not known as a pleasant person. Right. And right. they had achieved. They had done what they had to do to achieve. You got to respect that, right? 
But when it's time to celebrate you, yo, it does, the feeling must not be good if, if you weren't nice to other people. Yeah, I don't ever. There's no reason. There's nothing. There's no greatness that I have in me that's worth that. That is worth it. I'm not that great. I can't afford to be that person. Right. I'm not that great. I'm not a genius. There's nothing about me that's like you could do that. It's not. It's not worth it. I want, you know, if I ever get an opportunity to be celebrated in that, and there's no guarantee that I would ever be celebrated that way for people to be like. That's cool that he got this award, but what I really like about him is that he was just a nice person. He was pleasant. He made me feel good when I, when I walked away from him. And he told me that he felt good when he walked away from me, that I made him feel good. That's all I want in this business. And I think that that is actually priceless. That is not a given. And to me, that's the only thing that lasts. Right. Correct. You know, changing helping to change people's lives in a positive way, not through the image but through the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have no idea what the image is going to do. I can't control that. Once I make the image, I don't know. It could be a dud. It could be. It could change the world. I have no idea. The one thing I can control is how I deal with the people who are standing next to me when I'm making, making that thing. And I have decided to definitely leave those experiences as positive as possible. So, Hans, Spike Lee... Ava DuVernay, Nefertiti Nguvu, Salima Keel, Gloria Lamort. I mean, these are heavy hitters in the business. And you, my friend, are the person that they've called many a time to shoot their projects. How has working with these filmmakers pushed you? Or, or have the, just the experiences pushed you? How has that worked out for you? I mean, you work with great directors... You're just trying to hang on, is all I can say. When I look back at like doing 13th, I, I think I was just trying to hang on. Like I was just, I was working with a great mind and I'm just trying to hang on. Mm. You know, I'm working with somebody that sees herself as a world changer and you're just trying to hang on. You know, you're trying to make something that makes that person happy and feel like they're doing, they're getting what they want. And that's not easy. Um, that's it, you know. A lot of these names are sort of earlier on. Now I feel like, you know, I have a different thing that I bring. There's a confidence, but I hate, I kind of hate the confidence now. <laughs> because the confidence... Gives you pressure? No, nah, it takes away an edge, I feel like. There, there was something about not having confidence that made me live on the edge. That got I love. it, got it. You know, I'm, I don't have that edge anymore. And that bothers me. So I don't know how to replace it. I just mean maybe more skill. You know. We mentioned we mentioned some of your nominations. Well, you know, we didn't touch on it. What are some of the, the uh, nominations that you your work has received and the awards? You know, uh, of Mike's and Men got a great um, writing award for the Emmys. Thirteenth got Emmys, Peabody's, all kinds of awards. Um, One Angry has won a ton of awards. Um, uh, Mr. Soul documentary I worked on has won a ton of awards. Um, so I've always got in terms of documentary, I just go after culturally relevant, interesting work to me. Like it's like the work I want to do is like I want to talk about this subject. I definitely and none of these have I ever thought about. This is gonna be a this because you just it's lightning. You don't know where lightning is gonna strike. It could be a thunderstorm. You stand in a thunderstorm. You don't get struck by lightning. So pick from the heart. You just got like this, this, like, because, you know, a lot of these projects are going to be three, four months. Like, this is the thing I want to be talking about for the next three, four months. So that's it. 
I, I, I have no control what's going to happen afterwards. Right. You know, I have no control. So I, I want to talk about this for the next. I want to talk about Wu-Tang for the next, you know, it was nine months of my life. That's what I wanted to talk about. I was perfectly happy doing it. You know what I'm sense. saying? Like, so re- re- regardless if I got a nomination or not irrelevant, I got to have those conversations with those artists. I got to be in the room with those artists. And that's what mattered to me at the time. Mm. Hans, tell me, what has the experience been like as a college professor? Um, It's been great. I mean, I just, I just got tenure. Did you? Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So that's been interesting. Um, I don't particularly consider myself an academic, but Menelik is a very sort of a, like he comes from an academic family. His mom was a PhD. Um, he just got his master, his MFA. And so we spend a lot of time sort of thinking academically and he's the person I sort of think the most academically with. Um, I've just tried to, I've tried to balance out teaching with the pursuit of my career. The pursuit of my career is a little bit more important, but um, I feel like since somebody taught me, I, I feel like I need to teach somebody. Right. Um, I don't know if I consider myself a teacher, but it's, it's very helpful on set because, because I know how to talk to people to mm. get them to learn something without talking down to them. Mm-hmm, 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 so it's mm-hmm. very helpful with dealing with new directors um, I almost prefer to work with new directors. Not prefer, but I can easily work with new directors, what I can say. Like, I have no, I'm not, they don't scare me. I'm not even like, oh, you know, it, <laughs> because it's just like, you know, it's just like approaching a college student. You know, it's not that much different in some, in some respects. What are some, like, nuggets, like, I guess you would say, uh, that you would give to, I mean, I know it's a cliche question, but what are some of the nuggets that you drop in, in, and give to young filmmakers, you know? Mm, be on time. Send things when you say you're gonna send them. Be nice to everybody on set. Is there any film that you wish you'd shot? Um, there are lots of films I wish I shot. Um, just because it would have been nice to just the fun. Like, uh, I think I would have loved to have shot Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Yeah. Interesting. By Ang Lee. It's like his first or second film out of Taiwan. I think out of Taiwan. I don't think it was. Oh, no. I think it was mainland China. Okay. Yeah. I want to say In the Mood for Love, but that's just anything. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I've never done that film justice. What's, what's, what is something that Hans Charles, the cinematographer, what is something that you look at that's your guilty pleasure? What's, what's, what's your trash TV favorite? <laughs> oh, I just, uh, I just binge watch Rick and Morty. Okay. That's interesting. You know what TV show I wish I shot? I'll, I will answer this question. I wish I shot The Handmaid's Tale. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Good one. Good one. Good Very one. Very interesting. Like, visually. Yes. Agreed. What would you tell 18-year-old Hans Charles? Love without worry of consequence. Love without worry of consequence. Ooh. Very deep. What's next for Hans Charles? Um, so my production company and I, I have a producing partner, Caroline Onikunte. We're going to, um, we're producing this feature in September. Very excited about working with this filmmaker. Can't give details, but we are doing that. So that's like, that's the first time I'm just stepping out just as a producer, purely as a producer, you know, 
with my producing partner. Very excited about that. And then my creative partner and I, Menelik, um, and I are developing and very close to finalizing some deals on like two or three projects. Mm. So um, quietly, I'm going to, I feel like, like the way I see myself in this business in terms of like the black folks in this business is I feel like I was a capo that started his own family. Mm. You know, I went and started my own family. And that means one of two things. It means either if we get, if this family gets on our feet, we're going to work in contingent with other people or we're going to start taking folks out. So it may depend, like we may have to be like, we can, we're only, only guys in, you know what, we, you know, it's almost like the Godfather, like we got to take out all these people before, and then we'll, then we'll do peace. I see my son, and that's a very, um, it's very violent imagery to kind of see in terms of work. But I do feel like, I feel like I've started my own family. So I'm not, I think people associate me with certain sort of visual and black aesthetic camps. I'm not really a part of any of those camps. I'm really my own thing. And I'm starting my own thing with people that I want. These are the people I actually want to work. Even though I've run with different people all over the business. But these are the people that I really, really want to do this thing with. I, I don't know if it's going to work out. I can't say. But if it works out, if we survive, I have to be honest and say that before we make peace, we might have to take some folks out before we make peace. There goes a Godfather reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you know the Godfather, you know what that means. And that's a very... That's the first time I've ever said that publicly. <laughs> but, like, if you hear that, like, oh, Han's got this development deal and he's got this deal, like, know that, I, like, that means I'm, like... If you're certain people in this business, know that I'm, like, literally trying to take you out. Mm. And then we'll have peace. And then everybody can come in. Understood. When you're 95, 105, somewhere in that age range... And you're on your rocking chair overlooking whatever ocean you've built your mansion on. What is the thing that you would say I wanted to accomplish and I did? What is Hans Charles' ultimate goal? If I become or if I continue to pursue a career as an all-around filmmaker, and if you want an example like an all-around filmmaker, like think of like a Steven Soderbergh, which is sort of like an example. If I do that, then I think I would have done it. I would have loved, it just it wasn't in the cards. I would have loved to become a performing musician. Mm. To have been on stage performing with a singer or whatever would have been, I think, the first goal. That just was not, was never was going to be in the cards. Mm. If I pursued a music and career, a career in music, I would have been uh, a very angry. But I just I don't have the raw talent. There's just so many levels. But some of that energy and some of that creativity certainly translates. And there was the curve for learning this in terms of as a filmmaker is definitely better. And so, um, yeah, at this point, if I could fully actualize as a filmmaker, so somebody who who not write, produce, and direct, no, not, but a somebody who on this project will produce a project, on this project will write a project, on this project will simply be a cinematographer, um, maybe as background talent, even sit in front of the camera, you know what I'm saying? Like, just be in this business and to try different things in this business. Um, if I do that and in the process of doing that, if I can, if I'm 95, I want to be able to say 
that not only did I take care of my production company and the partners that I work with, but there were other people that I absolutely brought along and made their thing able to happen. Awesome. If I can do that, then I've done it. A mouthful, a mouthful. So Hans, this is the part of the interview where I strap on my spacesuit and I jump off of Planet 30 into the atmosphere and I leave you on the planet alone. The planet is yours. Say to the audience whatever it is you want to say to the audience. Hmm. I don't think I have anything profound and interesting to say except I appreciate singers. So I think you should, if you're listening to this podcast, pull up a Aretha Franklin song. Like listen to Bridge Over Troubled Water or... Um, Shaka Khan, I think, would be a great voice to listen to. I think there's something about the power, pain, love, happiness in these women's voice that I think will change your vibration for the day. And then you can end that with a little bit, or you could middle that with a little some prince. But I like to end my days listening to a combination of like MOP, Mob Deep, <laughs> Um, I love listening to Nas and Jay-Z on Black Republicans and then like Nas. Mm. And I feel like that music does something to the way I move in the world. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Hans, how do we contact you? Uh, social media? My, all my socials at CineClass. C-I-N-E-C-L-A-S-S at Cineclass. Hans Charles, the cinematographer whose work has been Emmy nominated, Oscar nominated, and uh, has won a BAFTA award. It has been nothing but a pleasure reconnecting and catching up with you and having you share yourself with my audience. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.